0: Welcome to Taxpayer Talk. In today's episode of our MPs in Depth series, I sit down with Labour MP for Palmerston North, Tangi Utikiri. Have I got the pronunciation right? You have. Fantastic. Fantastic. Mr Utikiri was previously Deputy Mayor of Palmerston North before being elected to Parliament last year replacing Ian Lees Galloway, who chose not to stand. He has Cook Islands heritage and outside of politics, he's worked as a history teacher and as a judicial justice of the peace. Tangi, you first sought Labour's nomination for Palmerston North back in 2008. You've since had a 10-year stint in local government before taking a successful crack at Parliament for a second time. So what brought you back into politics in 2008 or was it even earlier? It's probably earlier than that, actually, Louie. Um, so my
1: history, I guess, in terms of politics, full stop, was through my Cook Island whānau, um, my uncle Ty Williams-Hewitt, who was a uh, stalwart within the Labour Party and sort of encouraged me to, to do what I could. And for me, the natural home was the Labour Party. So probably from when I was around about 17, 18, is when I was involved in the party. Um, and then things just naturally progressed you know, th- through that process, obviously, um, professional career and education. So I went through all of that, still participated with the Labour Party, had a number of um, offices that I held at a local level. And then, obviously, yes, you're right, I did seek the nomination. Um, it wasn't to be at that stage. Uh, and so I, I focused on the local government uh, space and had enjoyed, actually, my 10-year stint um, within that before moving on to this new opportunity.
0: mm mm-hmm. In 2008 or even earlier, um, was there a point at which you decided that politics would be a career?
1: I think um, politics... As a career as such, um, when you're young, often you think that's a way in which you can maybe make a difference or be involved, and then you become a bit older and you realise actually politics is much broader than just being a member of parliament. Politics is about the conversations that you have around your dinner table, in the workplaces, you know, in um, and, and sports teams and all of those sorts of things. So politics as such is something I've always been interested in. I did a, a degree with a major in political science, so that's more of the theoretical aspect aspect, whereas this is obviously the practical components. So I'd like to think that it was always in my blood, um, but I've I've tried to focus my career, I guess, on things where I think I can make a difference and things that I've enjoyed at the same time. Um, and it's just been, I guess, um, the way that things have panned out and turned out as a, a move from working within the party, uh, continuing to support and work within the party through local government and then into um, central government here at Parliament. Mm. The,
0: Palmerston North, the Palmerston North Sea uh, has been held by Labour since 1975, or at least that's what I found on Wikipedia. Um, that's probably right. <laughs> uh, do you consider it a safe seat? And if so, how long could you see yourself in that seat for?
1: I I don't consider it a safe seat. I don't consider any seat a safe seat. And I think we just need to look at the most recent election to indicate that many people um, believe that some seats were safe and that was not the case. So for me, it's always a seat, I think, that has acknowledged that Labour members have worked really hard for their constituents. That's what I continue to do. My primary focus is, as the electorate member, to support the people of Palmerston North. Um, And for me, I've always said that these are in three-year stints Um, everything going well so for me I'm I'm the local member for the next three years Um, I think anyone that suggests that they want to stay in a seat for ad finitum in quite a lengthy time is probably not the move that I would take but every three years I'll reflect and if the party uh, still wishes to have me if I still believe I have something to offer if I believe that the constituents um, that I work really hard for for believe that I could continue in that role then I will seek the mandate from the electorate but I I will do that on an election by election Mm -hmm. basis
0: I'd like to know more about, about the Palmerston North electorate oh, itself. Oh, good. Um, I want to know, is uh, I guess, about the character of the electorate, because when I look at the electorate map, it looks a little like an enclave of red within a sea of blue. So is it perhaps the student population that defines this labour leaning swing or is there something else going on there? Oh, they're very wise people in Palmerston North, I'll tell you that for free.
1: But what I do know is, um, you know, we're a very educated uh, city and that includes students but also those that um, fit the the student cohort from right across the board really um, they are a, a constituency or a community that is rich in diversity, we're a welcoming community we're a flat community, we had the Minister of uh, Transport in, in the electorate recently on a bike commenting how flat the place was um, that means that we're able to uh, plan for the city well um, it's a place that I was born in there at the hospital so it's the place that I have always lived in, it's my community it's it's local, mm-hmm. um, it is the place that I call home. In terms of it being a a little red blob uh, surrounded by blue currently, um, you may recall that previous elections where you looked at a map of New Zealand or of that part of the country, it, it had been something like that for some time mm-hmm. and goes back to the 1970s where it had been held um, you know, by the Labour Party since then. My first involvement was working on Steve Mahari's campaign. That was my first sense of involvement and then obviously from from Steve to Ian and now to me um, and I'm hopeful that the electorate will continue to see that a a Labour member um, is able to look out for their needs and represent
0: them. Mm -hmm. In terms of the student population, um, do you find it, uh, well I guess you would know the answer to this because I don't, is it actually difficult to persuade Uh, Students who study at Massey University to stay in Palmerston North as graduates?
1: No, when you're looking at the demographic of um, Massey itself, it's actually spread across three campuses. So you've got Albany in the north, Manawatu, um, which coincidentally physically is not in my electorate. So Massey University is physically in the Rangatika electorate, but clearly the the, um, people that work there, the students that go there, largely fall within Palmerston North City. Um, We've got Wellington and then a huge distance learning opportunity as well. Um, so I think actually the the connection where the students are part of the local community, whether they have been there and have grown up there or whether they visit because of the particular focus in the food sector or agribusiness or the vet school or science, um, they always leave a piece of them there, whether that's them physically they want to stay or they take away with them what was important for them for Palmerston North. And you see that, you know, we've got um, massive. Graduations happening this week. I was able mm-hmm. to return for a graduation as a guest speaker there earlier in the week. Um, and it's just wonderful to see that students are succeeding, but also that they do make Palmer's North their home, whether that's for a short period. Or a longer period.
0: Is Palmerston North undergoing growth at the moment?
1: Yeah, it is. So, obviously, with my experience with the council, um, the city is in a good place. Um, in the sort of medium term, its its projections are looking positive. It's just hit under 91,000 as a city. Um, it's projected to grow, and the council is in a position to be able to plan for growth in terms of the northeast industrial parts of the city, which is largely industrial, um, some wetlands developments out there as well, and in Longburn. But also, it's just being able to cater for the growth that um naturally has actually come to that that particular yes. part of the of the country.
0: Mm. Turning back to your campaign for the seat last year. Yeah, um, the taxpayers union noticed uh, in the news that there were a few different uh, local councillors across the country running for parliament. Uh, in our experience in most cases, they um from our in our view regrettably continue to take their council salary while campaigning for central government. Now, you were an exception. You actually chose to give up that council salary despite still being the deputy mayor. Why was that?
1: Yeah, well, I think, um, and I can only talk to my own personal um, circumstance, Um, the selection for me... Uh, was not an expected opportunity. I'm saying that at the start of the year. So if I entered the start of, well, this time last year, I was not expecting to run for
0: Parliament. Um, Sorry, and for the sake of our listeners, I I should clarify this is because Ian Lees-Galloway, quite close to the election, announced that he was not planning to stand again. That's
1: correct. He had decided that at the election he would retire. Um, And so there was a requirement that the party would need to select a new candidate. Um, The party moved really quickly to put in place a process that was very robust um, to select a a candidate. And, you know, in the space of a week from me on the Monday, for example, um, as the Deputy Mayor, not anticipating that there would be a selection to the following Monday, me being the Labour Party candidate, that's a very short period of time. Mm -hmm. So if it was at the start of the year, perhaps, and I was thinking of running for selection or for parliament, then I may have had some conversations with people and thinking about what I might want to do in terms of salary for me. For me, it was a, an easy decision to make. Um, I didn't want there to be any confusion that the ratepayers perhaps would be funding my ability to campaign whilst campaigning on, on the trail. Mm-hmm. And so I think within 24 or 48 hours, um, I'd made that willow. I'd made the decision straight away, but within 24 to 48 hours, um, I had released that and I had instructed um, the HR department of the council, basically, that the money was to be returned to the ratepayers through the, the Mural d- Disaster Relief Fund. Yes. Um, so that was the dis- right decision for me uh, because, I, 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 one, I was able to do it, yes. thankfully. Not everyone can do that, but... Um, it also meant that I could just get on and campaign without yes. people thinking that, you know, I was campaigning on the
0: ratepayers coin. Yes, you might not have thought about this aspect at the time, but um, in a way it sets a precedent, doesn't it? Other uh, other candidates in future elections will be wrestling with these, type, uh, these same types of questions and may choose to look to your example.
1: Well, they may but I think that's a, that's a decision for individuals. Um for me, you know, that's where my my values were placed and based as well. Um I was fortunate in that I was able to do that. Um perhaps if I had an indication that I was going to run for parliament, I would not have sought the election on the council, you know, um, the, the October before. Okay. Um, so in situations where people, I mean, a good example is, you know, there have been occasions where people have um, campaigned they as a local elected member and they've been elected. Um, the people in my community were very grateful that I had made that decision to return my salary. Um, but again, that was a personal choice mm-hmm. for me and my family. Mm-hmm.
0: Because the circumstances of your election are quite interesting, I just want to delve into that that timeline, I guess. So Ian Lees-Galloway confirmed that he would not be standing. Uh, how soon did it take you after that announcement to make the decision to stand for Parliament?
1: Yeah, so this was in July, and usually what happens in July is, um, you know, councils have gone through a process of finding up, signing off their annual plans or whatever it might be, whether it's a 10-year long-term plan. And so it gives an opportunity for staff to get on and do things. So there were no committee meetings or any. I think in July for us um, and so my partner and I went for a week on leave um, and this all uh, the announcement that um, there would be a vacancy happened when I was returning to Palmer's North because of the time frame that was set by the party and rightly so because at that stage it was only eight weeks out from the general election um, it was subsequently extended to when yes. the, the date was moved to 12 weeks um, it did mean that I had probably a 24-hour window. To make a decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I sought um, feedback from people. People very uh, kindly contacted me, believed that I would be an ideal candidate, that I could do the job. Um, so, but I knew for me and my family that once I'd made the decision that I was going to seek selection, and I didn't do that through the press, that wasn't appropriate. That um, mm-hmm. was a responsibility for the local Labor Party and the party itself uh, to be informed around that. I'd made that call.
0: You sought the, the same opportunity back in 2008. Is it fair to say that this was an opportunity you were waiting for?
1: Um, what I think is fair to say is that when I went to my ratepayers at the last local body election, I was determined – in the current context that I would see out my term as a city councillor and fortunately as deputy mayor. Um, you know, I did not go into that local election with an intention of contesting a parliamentary general election Um the following year. Uh, look, I always think that when opportunities present themselves, you, if appropriate, need to take them. I did. And I find myself um, as the new member for Palmerston North, although it's more than six months, so probably not new anymore. But um, And I'm really enjoying that opportunity to serve my community.
0: These types of questions, were they questions you had to traverse while door knocking your electorate uh, campaigning as MP?
1: Actually, no. Um, I was. I, I thought that there might be some uh, conversation on doorsteps and at markets and on street corner meetings around a whole range of different things, and there were. Um, but people actually were very complimentary. Um, they had I think seen that I had a track record in the city Um, you know the the last local body election I was the highest polling councillor I have served my community in that capacity and they were really supportive of uh, my desire to represent the Labour Party in Parliament. Mm.
0: So now moving on to your role as the uh, electorate MP it is interesting that you have this uh, very, very recent background as deputy mayor. I wondered how you um, how you consider your current relationship with the council and what you consider to be the role of a local MP uh, in dealing with a local council. For example, do you, do you keep well away from them and their decisions and their debate? Or are there times when you think it's actually appropriate to sit down and work with those colleagues or those former colleagues?
1: It's, it's a really interesting question because I've been really clear that I'm not going to be that guy that constantly goes back to the council, sits in on their meetings, gives them feedback. Um, I don't want to do that. I don't think that's fair on me and I don't think it's fair on the ratepayers or indeed the elected members for Palmerston North. So I've made it clear to the mayor and others that I intend to, to keep a watching brief, obviously, because that is the role of the local member of parliament to understand uh, what's going on, to have their finger on the pulse. And I mean, I meet frequently with the mayor and other councillors. Um, I'm meeting with the mayor tomorrow morning actually just to talk through certain things you know that there's no surprises about mm-hmm. what's happening at council level um, obviously there is um, a piece of land in Palmerston North that the council wishes to rezone uh, that requires a, a change in terms of an act of parliament so the council yep. will be liaising with me around progressing that and that's my duty as the local member to, to do that but look you know as a local MP I'm out and about in the communities whenever I can um, I see the council uh, but you don't see me on their stall. Uh, we keep a distance, but a friendly distance. Mm.
0: Um, my next question was going to be um, well, I'll ask it anyway, even though you, you've partly answered it is do they ever lobby you? And you gave the example of a zoning change, which actually would have to facilitate um, a change in an act in parliament. But on broader issues, are you ever lobbied by some of your former, former colleagues? Oh, I, I think it would be fair
1: to say that every local MP, including me, um, Always has any of their local representatives, you know, potentially in their area because they are wanting to ensure that they are receiving their fair share of the pie. Um, you know, and that would that would happen for any government MP. Yes. That's not to say that, you know, there's going to be some strings pulled or anything like that, far from it. But what it does indicate and demonstrate is that there is a really close relationship between the local member and the elected council. And we need to agree to disagree mm-hmm. from time to time.
0: Does that close relationship? relationship pose
1: any risks or challenges? Um, I think the the perception could be that there is a risk. Um, I'm really clear on process. Um, and so for me, my colleagues, my former colleagues actually will also understand that I'm really clear on process. You can ask anyone, I'm, I'm sure they will tell you that. Um, so it's more about perception. And that's why I think it's also important that the local MP, well, this local MP doesn't get involved in the minutiae and the day-to-day stuff of the council. Um I have a regular stall at the at the market uh, back home, and you know when people come and see me, and it's a council issue. I'm very happy to say that is a council issue. Um, because that was my I think, next
0: question was, um, do you ever lobby them, or do your constituents ever ask you to lobby them?
1: Um, yeah, they do. Constituents do, but I'm also really clear that the role of me as the local MP and my staff in Palmerston North is to facilitate access through the right channels so you know we will make sure that if there is a a constituent who has an issue about footpaths or rubbish or wastewater that we don't necessarily go and lobby for them but we make sure that they're able to access the people uh, which generally are their local councillors to be able to follow that through from them so Mm -hmm. I'm very clear on the distinction Um, my former colleagues are very clear and that's the reason why we have a really positive working relationship Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, outside of Palmerston North, here we are in Wellington. Uh, I wondered what are the major issues or policies that are currently consuming your time and attention? Well, I mean, my two
1: responsibilities here at Parliament are aligned with my select committees. So there's the Governance and Administration Select Committee, which I'm the Deputy Chair of. Um, that's chaired by an opposition member. It's a committee of five. So as the, the Deputy Chair from the government, which has a majority, um, you know, I have a role to play there, the the key areas of focus, obviously, progressing legislation at the moment around, um, you know, the the role of the chief censor, um, to be able to issue interim urgent classification mm-hmm. on some uh, publications that stems from what's happened in Christchurch, um, so there's those sort of opportunities in internal offence, um, fire emergency New Zealand, uh, national emergency management, uh, Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, the Speaker, the Office of the Clerk. Um, a whole range of other things. So there's that. But there's also the Environment Select Committee, which I'm a government member of as well. And obviously we've got the RMA reforms that we have announced. So that will be, as we understand it, progress through the Environment Select Committee. So when that does take place in the next month or two, um, that will be occupying quite a bit of my time. And I'm looking to bring with me my experience as chair of the hearings committee, but also as a Resource Management Act commissioner, uh, to be able to bring that to the table as we work through that process with our communities.
0: Mm. Um, but be honest. When when an issue comes across your desk across um, on one of these select committees, do you sometimes think I'd really rather be dealing with something else?
1: Look, I think actually the role of any select committee member is to give every single item that does come across my desk, the attention that it deserves. Um, and that's because we have people up and down this country whose one opportunity at times to engage with the parliamentary process is through the select committee process. And so I don't treat that very lightly. I take that very seriously. Um, and so I would expect that others would see it in a similar sort of light as well.
0: Mm-hmm. In entering politics, there must have been certain issues, and I wonder perhaps certain policy areas that have really uh, uh, grabbed grabbed your attention and motivated you. If you actually did have a choice to pull a lever on a certain policy area in New Zealand, regardless of your select committee responsibilities, where would you start?
1: Well, that's a really interesting question because um, you know my history up until this point has largely been in education, as I've said, in local government, um, and in the criminal justice sector or system as well and so for me you know a member um, of two select committees one both of them I'm really comfortable with in terms of the content Um, but I probably would think in terms of justice you know there's there's um, a lot of good stuff happening in the justice sector just prior to my election or my selection actually um, I'd been appointed as an in, uh, inaugural criminal cases review commission commissioner. Mm-hmm. Fantastic piece of work that I was really looking forward to. Unfortunately, I didn't get to do much yep. more than about six or eight weeks. This is a, is of a new
0: body that reviews previously settled cases?
1: It No, it, it reviews uh, potential miscarriages of justice, okay. um, which... Prior to the introduction of the commission, was dealt with via the royal prerogative of mercy through the governor general, and you know we saw throughout that process that not a lot of Māori, not a lot of Pacifica, um, were, were using that. It was a, a, a different process. So, uh, in the last term of of the parliament, the government had established this new commission, um, and I was really looking forward to that work. So it would probably be ensuring that the commission is able to continue with its work, um, that it was in a position where, you know, it had only been, it's not even 12 months yet. Mm -hmm. So an opportunity to just reflect on how the the first 12 months have been. And um, yeah, a little discreet part of the criminal justice sector, but a really, really important one. And so I'd probably be interested just to keep an eye on that.
0: Sure. Now you have a Cook Islands background, don't you? I do. And do any other um, MPs in Labour have a Cook Islands background?
1: Yes, there's one, uh, and that's uh, Portal Williams. Okay. So she's the Minister of Police, amongst other things, Minister of Building Construction, Um, and so... Her and I together are the, the Cook Island Cornella. And if you're looking at the Parliament, um, the Green MP based in Palmerston North, Tiano uh completes the, the trifecta. So ah. there's the three of us there.
0: So Cook, the Cook Islands are reasonably well represented. Um, has this helped uh, in the case for a Cook Islands bubble?
1: Oh, look, I'm excited that the announcement that the Cook Islands bubble is opening up has been made. But you know, I've been really clear, and I've spoken about this in the House, that we would only get to that point when we were absolutely certain that particularly the Cook Island public health system would be able to cope with that that particular move. Um, We had the Cook Island Prime Minister, Mark Brown, here last month, so it's an opportunity to meet with him as well. Um, I think what this opportunity provides having particularly in labor you know the government we have 10 of the 11 Pacifica members of Parliament uh, come from Labour. We have a huge Pacifica caucus. It's uh, meant that as a team we've been able to come together, you know, for the start of this parliamentary term to talk about what we wish to focus on and to ensure that we are out and about in our communities. And I expect people to see that uh, as this parliamentary term continues.
0: Mm -hmm. We've seen um, in Fiji uh, COVID-19 cases including um, cases within a hospital that, that have seen that whole hospital locked down. Uh, is is that something of a fear or does that weigh on you when you look at issues like the Cook Islands bubble?
1: Well, that was part of the consideration uh, in the mix for making that decision by you know those that were empowered to make the decision. And just early in the week, I, I'd asked a question of uh, Minister Hipkins, who's responsible for the COVID-19 response, around... Basically, how that would have an impact and what the steps would be if the Cook Island public health system or service was in a position where we did have an outbreak. And so, you know, he very eloquently outlined what the response would be. I'm satisfied with that and that New Zealand is able to play its role. We have a responsibility, in my view, not just to the Cook Islands, but to our other two realm countries as well, you know, in terms of Niue and Tokelau, but also the South Pacific, because that's what's so special about this place that we live in is it's it's that connectivity that we have with that special part of the world okay
0: um something we try to ask every MP on this podcast um it's a very broad question what in your words is the role of government the
1: role of government is to lead to listen and to be accountable to the Parliament. Um, You know, you've got to provide leadership because the electorate has effectively given that to the government, uh, whatever that government looks like. The government needs to listen to ensure that its finger is on the pulse and that it's responsive to the needs of its community um, and, finally, it needs to be accountable. And that's why the very institution of Parliament uh, provides all these different mechanisms to provide the accountability. I get that from time to time people don't like the decisions that a party or a government might make, but we've got to respect the view of the electorate and ensure that those accountability uh, mechanisms are in place. So leader, leadership, listen. And accountability.
0: On, on, that, on that note, um, Labor obviously commands a significant majority in the House now. Um, does any part of you worry that that can have implications in terms of weakening accountability?
1: Look, what I. Uh, <laughs> No, I, I'm, I'm pretty clear around my own approach that, you know, this is a significant milestone in our electoral history. Not since MNP's introduction in 1996 have we had a single party that has had a majority in its own right. But let's be clear around what that means. For us as a party, it means that we are not going to arrogate our responsibility to be accountable, that we will continue to, um, you know, front up. Uh, and that's, that's really important to me and other members of the caucus as well.
0: On a select committee, for example, um, that, that majority that exists within Parliament, that does filter through into select committee majorities, doesn't it? It does, yes. Did you say your deputy chair? Correct. Um, does that, so do you have to um, play a bit of a balancing game in terms of, for example, do you allow the opposition perhaps a more than a strictly proportional voice within that select committee setting? Well, in that select committee, I think probably it's it's one of the
1: the rare ones where you've got um, the, the chair and the deputy chair coming from two separate parties, in this case from the government and from the opposition. Yes. There sorry, it's the Government select committee? Correct, yeah. yes, it is. Um, there are some others that fit that bill as well, but generally that is not the case. If you have a look at the list of the select committees, you'll find that most of them uh, are not like that. Um, I actually meet with the chair every week that I'm here at Parliament. We Who's meet the chair, sorry? Barbara Kuriger, oh, yes. uh, the former government, you know, well, former uh, Government whip once upon a yes. time, but but chief whip over a in, in national. So I meet in her office every week with the clerks, and we talk through things so that there are you know so that we're both on the same page. I actually think you'll find that if you had a look at how the governance and administration select committee actually functions, that it's a fairly fair, it's a robust committee, um, but it's it's a small one, uh, and yeah, it, it doesn't seem to purely align itself with no no if you know twenty percent there, thirty percent there, all of those sorts of things. It is a Parliamentary Functioning Select Committee um, and that's how I intend to to continue to function moving
0: forward. Now this is a Taxpayers Union podcast so I should probably ask you one question about tax. Actually I've got two (laughs) questions about tax. Yes I pay tax. You do, okay. (laughs) Do you pay too much or not enough? I don't have an issue paying the right amount of tax. Okay, Um, what's your least favourite tax? My least
1: favourite tax... No, I don't have a least favourite tax.
0: Well, do you love all taxes equally, or is there one particular tax that you actually um, particularly like?
1: I I, I I, think the thing with tax is I don't have an issue paying taxes, I've said, um, because I think that everyone has a responsibility. Um, I see it as, as my opportunity to pay my fair share and to contribute as part of being a, a
0: part of this wonderful country. From a policy perspective, though, do you see certain taxes as particularly, uh, I don't, for example, regressive?
1: Um, I think some might see them in that particular light. But at the end of the day, it's about responsibility.
0: Um, and I'm perfectly fine paying my fair share of tax. Mm. And again, just from a policy perspective, and I, I know I asked your favourite your favourite tax, um, thinking from a policy perspective, is there, is there actually a particular tax that you think uh, works particularly well or plays a particularly important function, either in terms of raising revenue or creating some kind of equity? Well, in ter- well, actually, I think in terms
1: of the approach to tax, in terms of closing the loophole around you know our recent uh, packages around housing announcements, for example, um, yes, I think that is. An attempt and a good one because it will work to provide a little bit more equity and fairness so that those that wish to write off uh, certain opportunities that are not are about, that are not available to everyone um, it removes that discrepancy so probably that's a roundabout way of of um, answering your question
0: okay and as a history teacher if you could meet <laughs> one historical figure who would it be Gandhi Gandhi And who's the most famous person you actually have met?
1: The most famous person I have actually met?
0: um, The ACT MP said David Seymour.
1: Oh, no, no. Um, Well, I think that's relative to everyone because, you know, if it's politics, it's a certain individual. Um, No, look, I think for me it's – Yes, it's about meeting people, but it's more about the experience that you have with them. And while you might be able to meet someone, you might not necessarily have a good experience as as part of that. Um, Never meet your heroes. Sorry? Never meet your heroes. Never meet your heroes. Look, I think in terms of a hero, it's always
0: something that you look up to. And so for me, I'd like to keep the magic there, I think. Very good. Thank you so much, Tangi, for joining us. Now, the Taxpayers Talk podcast is made possible by the tens of thousands of New Zealanders who join or support the taxpayers union at taxpayers.org.nz. Constructive feedback is welcome via podcast at taxpayers.org.nz. And don't forget to hit subscribe or even give us a five-star review on your podcast app.